0: The sexual exploitation of black women, of course, had its roots in slavery. Slave owners' stolen access to black women's bodies strengthened their political, their social, and their economic power, really for two reasons. One, is that colonial laws made the offspring of slave women the property of their master, giving slave owners a financial incentive to abuse their slaves. And two, colonial laws that banned interracial marriage, but not fornication or childbirth out of wedlock, awarded white men exclusive sexual access to black and white women, while denying black women the respectability and rights granted by a legal relationship.
1: What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers. And we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their
2: lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think.
1: Feel. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other, because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. I refer first to the need for far greater public information. To the need for far greater official secrecy. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8
2: billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it.
1: If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, it didn't happen. Here we are. You're
2: wrong. Are you better, Are you better off than wrong? you were 4 years ago? When I hear
1: your new ideas, I'm reminded of that ad. Where's the beef? The They're looking for help. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their
0: jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names.
1: When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, bankrupt, I know them. Well, Governor, we also have have fewer horses and bayonets bayonets. because the nature of our military has changed. We have these things called aircraft carriers where planes land on them. When we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. But their children were saved. And their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. Changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Public Access Access America. America.
0: These laws created a system that allowed white men to police white women's sexual and marital choices and sexually abuse black women with impunity both of which maintained white men's position atop a political and economic power structure. After slavery fell, these practices often remained. For example, during Reconstruction, former slaveholders and their sympathizers used violence to reassert control over freed people. In fact, rape became a weapon of terror, and interracial rape became the battleground upon which black men and women fought for ownership and control of their very own bodies. And so interracial rape was deployed as a justification for lynching black men who violated any aspect of the racial status quo, even though they were often accused of attacking white women. And so in order to maintain power and control, whites created the myth of the black beast rapist, the incubus, portraying them as a beast that attacked white women while they slept. And they used this image whenever they feared losing power. For example, white Democrats in North Carolina used the image of the incubus in 1900 to regain political control after the biracial fusion party took every single statewide office in 1898. Black club women like Ida B. Wells, who led the crusade against lynching in the 1890s, argued that white men accused black men of rape as part of a, quote, larger system of intimidation. Worse, she argued, they did this to mask their own barbarism and attacks on black women. She knew that white men attacked black women in an almost ritualistic fashion throughout the Jim Crow era. Now, black women were victimized, to be sure, but at the dark end of the street is not just about victimization. Many black women who were raped or assaulted fought back by speaking out. From the slave narratives of Harriet Jacobs to Ida B. Wells to Gertrude Perkins, African-American women described and denounced their sexual misuse, deploying their voices as weapons in the wars against white supremacy. But for every woman that spoke out, there were undoubtedly many more who kept these brutal attacks to themselves. And silence could be a useful strategy, especially when whites use racist violence and sexual abuse to shore up white supremacy. For example, African American leaders embraced the politics of respectability and adhered to a culture of silence as a matter of political necessity during the brutal white backlash unleashed by the 1954 Supreme Court decision outlawing segregation in public schools. For many supporters of segregation, integration, always meant miscegenation, or, as Mississippi judge and founder of the White Citizens Council, Tom Brady, put it, amalgamation. Headlines in the Citizens Council's newspapers warned whites that the incubus was coming. Mixed marriage, sex orgies, and accounts of black men raping white girls were, quote, typical of stories filtering back from areas where racial integration is proceeding with all deliberate speed. In fact, here's a Citizens' Council leader espousing these theories.
2: Don't you ever give up that gun! That's all you got left to protect that little baby in that crib. Because these dirty devils will be in your home! That's what they want. They do not want equality. You know they don't want equality. They don't want something like you've got. They want what you've got, your women.
0: Because segregationists employed these sexual scare tactics, particularly the myth of the black beast rapist, to oppose Brown and cultivate white fear and resentment toward integration, any gender or racial impropriety on the part of African-Americans could be viewed as threatening the social order. This is why African-Americans in Montgomery chose Rosa Parks as the symbol of the movement instead of the many other black women who could have easily filled that role. And so while silence was used at times for political reason, it's near universal adoption among scholars, despite evidence to the contrary, created a void in the historical record. By assuming silence, Historians have missed important milestones in the civil rights movement that I hope my work captures. For example, the arrest, trial and conviction of four white men for raping Betty Jean Owens, a black college student in Tallahassee, Florida in 1959, was a watershed event. The willingness of Betty Jean Owens to testify against her assailants focused national attention on the sexual exploitation of black women at the hands of white men. When an all-white jury handed down a life sentence, it not only broke with Southern tradition, it fractured the philosophical and political foundations of white supremacy by challenging the legal relationship based on those colonial era laws that I mentioned earlier between sexual domination and racial inequality for perhaps the first time since Reconstruction, Southern blacks could imagine state power being deployed in defense of their own personhood. Betty Jean Owens's grandmother recognized the importance of this historic decision. She said, I've lived to see the day where white men really could be brought to trial for what they did. The Tallahassee case led to convictions elsewhere that summer in Montgomery, Alabama in Raleigh, North Carolina, and in Burton, South Carolina where a white Marine actually received the death penalty for raping a black woman. That's the first one that I found and it was overturned on appeal. But in each case, white supremacy faltered in the face of the courageous black women who testified on their own behalf. John McCray, the editor of South Carolina's Lighthouse and Informer newspaper, wondered if these convictions pointed to a new day This forced intimacy, he said, goes back to the days of slavery when our women were the chattel property of white men. Are we now witnessing the arrival of our women, he said? Are they at long last gaining the emancipation they've needed? McCrae recognized that freedom was meaningless without ownership and control of your own body. Desegregation and equality meant little if you could not walk down the street unmolested. As Ella Baker put it a year later, the freedom struggle was bigger than a hamburger. As a result, the 1959 Tallahassee case was a major civil rights milestone. A 1965 case in Hattiesburg, uh, Mississippi was another milestone that historians have missed. Here's a clip of Indisha Ida May Holland, who testifies about black women and girls' special vulnerability in the segregated South.
2: I went to a babysit for this white family, and uh, the white woman called me upstairs. I went on upstairs in a hurry so as not to keep the white woman waiting. She said, Mr. Lawrence wants to see you. And I looked in the bed. Mr. Lawrence was laying there among the bedclothes. They were so silky. And uh, I said, uh, yes, sir, Mr. Lawrence, what you want with me? And he immediately pulled me down into the bed and had intercourse with me. It was, uh, I was 11 years old that day. It was my birthday. It was no reason for us to run and tell our mother or our father because they couldn't do anything about it, but get killed as they said something about it so many times. Girls, we girls would talk in the bathroom about it, you know, never telling our parents, but it, it happened very, very frequently.
0: The tenuousness of Black life in Mississippi left more than physical scars. It also left deep psychological wounds.
2: I hated it. I I had all kind of fantasies about. I was fascinated by people like David and Goliath stories. When I used my favorite biblical characters, the cats who kicked folks' butt. You know, know, I liked Moses drowning everybody in the Red Sea. I used to go in the woods. I used to go in the backwoods and preach and scream, bite them, run into bushes, hit trees, pretend they was white folks. So you learn how how to negotiate your life with white folks. And I guess you also learn uh, the fear associated with them of, uh, of how much power they actually held over you, how, how they could determine whether you continue to live uh, or whether you die.
0: After more than two decades of black women's brave testimony in Mississippi and community efforts to protect them from white sexual violence, an all-white jury finally sentenced Norman Cannon, a 19-year-old white man, to life in prison for raping a black teenager in 1965. Major newspapers hailed the conviction as a sign that even Mississippi was finally making serious changes. Like the Montgomery movement the 1965 Selma campaign has an important prehistory rooted in sexualized violence that historians have not yet explored. After the 1964 Freedom Summer federal intervention and congressional action on behalf of African-Americans left segregationists reeling. In Selma, Alabama, the staunchest supporters of segregation used the fear of interracial sex and the rhetoric of rape to resuscitate and to revive Jim Crow. And they used a kind of sexual McCarthyism to discredit the Voting Rights Act and to defame the demonstrators who risked their lives on the Selma to Montgomery march. Civil rights activists were no longer just outside agitators or communists. Now they were sexual fiends, intent on spreading a culture of depravity around the country. And so it was within that storm and because of it that the Ku Klux Klan murdered Viola Liuzzo, a white housewife from Detroit who defied gender and racial mores by embracing the black freedom struggle. Her detractors, of course, accused her of embracing black men. Now, if we incorporate analyses of race and sexual violence into well-known civil rights narratives, we change the historical markers of the movement. While the Voting Rights Act is often referenced as the bookend of the civil rights movement, one of the last legal barriers to black women's bodily integrity fell in 1967, when the Supreme Court banned uh, laws prohibiting interracial marriage in the landmark Loving versus Virginia decision. This law was rooted in those colonial era laws that I mentioned earlier, and so the ban on interracial marriage was one of really the last vestiges of slavery to fall. But only by placing the loving decision within the long struggle for black women's bodily integrity and freedom from racial and sexual terror can it be properly recognized as a major marker in the civil rights movement. Now, the right of black women to defend themselves from sexual violence was tested in the 1975 trial of Joanne Little. Joanne Little was a petite 20-year-old African-American inmate in the Beaufort County Jail in Washington, North Carolina. One night in August of 1974 Clarence Oligood, the 62-year-old sheriff, entered her cell. He allegedly threatened Little with an ice pick and sexually assaulted her. During the attack Little somehow managed to grab the ice pick from Ollie Good and proceeded to stab him to death. As Little prepared for trial, for murder, a broad coalition of supporters, from the National Organization of Women to the Black Panther Party, rallied to her defense. The Free Joanne Little movement mirrored the eclectic organizations that formed to protect Reese Taylor in 1944. Like the Committee for Equal Justice for Mrs. Recy Taylor, the Free Joanne Little movement was led primarily by African-American women. And I'll say this, in Detroit, the Free Joanne Little movement was led by Rosa Parks. At her trial, defense attorneys tried to paint Little as a typical black Jezebel, a stereotype rooted in slavery. They attacked her credibility, and they portrayed her as a prostitute. They suggested Little actually wanted to have sex with the jailer, that she seduced him and then killed him in an elaborate plot to escape. Little's attorney, on the other hand, fit her story into a much longer context. He read to the jury a long passage from an African-American woman's 1902 essay decrying the lack of protection for black womanhood and their special vulnerability in a system where white men could abuse them regularly. By reading this passage aloud, and pointing to decades of abuse in the past, he bore witness to black women's long-standing tradition of testimony and their attempts for dignity. After deliberating for over an hour, the jury unanimously voted to acquit Joanne Little of murder. As the jury foreman read the verdict, Little broke into sobs at the defense table as her lawyers clustered around her. Wiping away tears, and perhaps channeling John McRae, who in 1959 wondered if black women had finally achieved emancipation, she said, it feels good to be free. Now, this cartoon in the Baltimore Afro-American hailed the verdict as a major victory. Here, Littles portrayed as a champion boxer standing atop a bruised and battered Jim Crow. Hoisting Littles' gloved fists into the air, Her attorneys proclaim victory for their champ and a triumph over Jim Crow racism. With stars swirling around his head, looking tired and kind of overweight in his Confederate flag shorts, old Jim Crow is finally down for the count.
2: Depression. Depression. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. But it ain't about so how hard you get. It's, it's about how hard, how hard get. you get. keep moving forward. And keep moving forward. That's how we're That's start. I wanted to run
1: out of America on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and now Facebook. Public Access America. History in the making. Making. History in the making.